0: Kia ora, and welcome to the Marlborough Book Festival podcast, the place where you can hear writers talk about their work, their lives, and the inspiration behind their writing. I'm Claudia Small, the Treasurer on the Committee, and today I'm thrilled to be introducing the wonderful Kirsten McDougall in conversation with Rachel King. Climate change is no laughing matter, but Kirsten McDougall's fast-paced novel She's a Killer set in a foreseeable future Aotearoa is full of unexpected humour. Her apathetic protagonist Alice is content to observe society's disarray until a teenage genius with a fantastic backstory upends her life and emboldens her to act. Kirsten discusses her masterful plot, fresh characters and the power of fiction to help us face up to climate forecasts. The 2023 Marlborough Book Festival has been held from July 21 to 23, and author details will be available soon. For now, please enjoy Kirsten McDougall speaking with Rachel King at the 2022 Marlborough Book Festival.
1: Kia ora, everyone. Welcome to Spy Valley Wines. It is so cool to have events back here and fill in our cellar door. So we're so grateful for you to come all the way out here, and um, awesome to have have the team here today. So Spy Valley Wines, we're a really proud sponsors of the Marlborough Book Festival. So it's such a cool event, really exciting to have this over the weekend. Um, our chair of the session is award-winning novelist and short story write- writer Rachel King, who was until recently the program director of Word. the Christchurch Writers Festival. We are delighted to have you her here in Marlborough to talk with Kirsten McDougall. Thank you so much, Rachel. Thanks,
2: ladies. mai ki a katoa. Um, as you heard, my name is Rachel King, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you here to this Marlborough Book Festival session, Kirsten McDougall. She's a killer. Um, I want to say a huge thanks to Sophie and Sonia and Hannah and the rest of the committee and the team at the festival. This is possibly one of my favourite book festivals in the world. Um, You guys are so lucky, I can't tell you, Um, and as a fellow festival director, I was always quite jealous (laughs) of the wonderful (laughs) hospitality that they get to offer to their their writers, um, and also to to their audience, so... um, they, yeah, they run a really tight ship, and um, we're very lucky to be here. I think I finally nagged them into letting me come and share some things. So, yeah, I'm really happy about that. Um, so I'm here to tell you now that Kirsten McDougall is not a killer. Uh, <laughs> that you know. <laughs> that we know. Um, but she is a killer writer. Um, Q groans and terrible puns. Um, so She's a Killer is, of course, the title of her latest novel, which stormed up the bestseller list when it came out last year. It captured something of the zeitgeist of these weird times in which we live, it's set in the near future of imminent climate disaster, where food is expensive and water scarce, where class structures are amplified and where wealthy people from overseas, or wealthy, are buying their way into New Zealand, one of the last societies still functioning. Our narrator is Alice, a near genius slacker, who in- inadvertently finds herself pulled into climate action. Now, that all sounds a bit doom and gloom, but can, you can be assured that this is also bloody funny. Um, This is Kirsten's third book. Her first book was The Invisible Rider. Uh, It was a novel in linked stories and introduced Kirsten as a wry and clever storyteller with an acute sense of place, character and irony. Uh, It was also bloody funny. Uh, Her second novel was different in mood and tone, which we'll come back to. It wasn't bloody funny, but it is an atmospheric, semi-supernatural, semi-thriller that was shortlisted for the Niall Marsh Award for Best Novel and longlisted for the Occam's as well, I believe. Yes. Um, but wait, she's not just a novelist. Um, Kirsten's also a bang-up short story writer. In 2020, she won the Sunday Star Times Short Story Award for her dystopian Shirley Jackson-esque story Walking Day. And recently, The Newsroom published a brilliant story, Young Boys Take a Short Walk Through the Kingdom of Heaven. So today, we're going to have a chat about her work and some of its themes, um, a bit about the craft of writing. So I hope there's, are there any writers or aspiring writers in the audience today? Oh, well, never mind. (laughs) You're just too shy to say, I'm sure. Um, uh, And then we'll have some time for questions at the end. Um, But first, please join me in welcoming Kirsten. Um, can we start with short stories actually Because yeah. you told me the other day That oh. you just found that newsroom story In a, in a drawer um, That you'd written a while ago And you just kind of rediscovered it, is that true?
1: Yeah um, well, Kia ora tato. Um It's really lovely to be here And I'm actually just totally excited To be speaking with you Rachel Oh, <laughs> thanks um, Yeah um, I did um, I wrote this story I think it I didn't actually look at the date on the file um, but it might have been like 2019 um, and I'd filed it away. I think I had my head in a in, in novel. Yeah, well, I was heading towards novels at the time but I'd um, had this um, a school excursion with some children. It might have even been um, earlier than that and I it was utterly hilarious and I thought I've got to capture this before I forget anything because I've actually got a terrible memory. I'm actually, I think that um, writers with good memories, you have a good memory. No, I have a
2: terrible memory. Oh,
1: okay. <laughs> well, there are some writers who have really, really good memories. Elizabeth Knox is one. Um, and I feel often quite envious because they can sort of pick bits of their lives um, and, and pull them into their work. And Um, I've got to write things down if I'm going to remember anything, particularly language, because I'm really interested in the way people speak. Um, And this this short story that you refer to has children speaking, and children say the most batch of crazy, hilarious Mm. stuff. Yeah, so I um, had to get that down very quickly. But I just put it away and... um, and, as a writer, you like to um, be active and, and keep putting your work out there. And um, I was looking back through files because I was filing some new short stories and I went, oh, that story. And I opened it up and I thought, oh, that that's actually quite cool. <laughs> yeah. And um, so I sent it off to Steve Brawnius, who's here, and has done a, an amazing job at supporting um, the publication of short fiction because um, – For a few, so for a number of years, I worked for Victoria University Press now to heading a Waka University Press. I was there for almost nine years as the publicity manager. And one of the things that we'd noticed, actually, since I'd started working there in 2013, was that we were getting very few submissions of um, short fiction collections. Um, And to the point where in about 2018, I was like, where are the short fiction writers? Like, we're just not seeing them, um, and then strangely in the, in the probably in the last two years, like too many. Yeah. <laughs> what come we can't publish them all now, <laughs> but it was I felt as if a lot of the short fiction writers had moved to essays, so you get these beautiful writers, so all mentioned um, Ashley Young um, earlier um, Kate Camp has just put out her um, fantastic um, collection of um what's sort of memoir in chapters, but they read, like, short stories as well. She uses a lot of those techniques, dialogue, humour, you know, really creating the scene for you. Um, so I felt like a lot of the short fiction writers have maybe moved to essays, but they're swinging back around. But I, I really would um, sort of say thanks, Steve, for, for bringing that back um, and giving short story writers a platform because there aren't that many... I mean, there are a few publications, but actually... I've always wanted an audience Mm. And it's not in journals You know, there are The journals speak to writers We we buy the journals and read them But actually to get a story on Newsroom You're going to get far more Kind of You're going to reach a wider readership Mm -hmm. Even that can be a pain I mean, I don't know Does anyone read on their phone? Do you? I mean, like stories Do you read fiction on your phone? Yeah Yeah Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm mm. I'm reading Helen Garner on my phone at the moment because I get it through Libby, the library, and loving it. Mm, mm. But um, yeah, so so that's that.
2: I remember when I was writing short stories years ago, and yeah, it was it was like you know, do you get it published in Sport or Landfall, or was it only published online? You know, like online was seen as something that was lesser than than the other places.
1: And that's changed completely. Yeah, now it's I think now I think you're mm. like,
2: well, I could send it to mm. Landfall. Mm. Um, you know, which is, would be a great honour to have my work published in Ample, mm. or I could send it to Steve and he might publish it on Newsroom and actually people would read it. Yeah. Because they can, yeah. you can share things more easily yeah, you with can. your friends and it's a really great way to build up word of mouth. And
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: Um, your, your win with the Sunday Star Times competition was very um, – the timing was great too because, of course, it, you know, your book came out um, – a year later or something wasn't it so
1: yeah when was that so that was um, early 21 and the book came out in October mm. of that yeah yeah that was amazing that was a, such a thrill <laughs> and you were writing She's a color at the time when you... i just i actually just sort of sent She's a color off and i had all this energy mm. kind of writing energy it was like i'd built up this real head of steam and finished the book and sent it off and i suddenly had this idea for walking day, yeah. and um, and I have this real feeling with short fiction, it's a different feeling to novels. Um, short fiction, or well for me, I find it has to come out quite quickly, and I feel like um, each story is a capsule, a little vessel of a particular type of energy. Um, I've just finished a story that is actually about two elderly women, one who wants to die, she lost her family in a terrible accident ten years earlier and she's never recovered and she's just decided I'm going to end my life but she wants to do one last piece of service and she ends up working for a um, for an elderly woman who is obviously dying Um, And and, um, so there's a really different sort of energy in that that story, it's um, it's probably quite um, um, there's a lot of images um, it's less concrete than a book like this mm. um, yeah and and re- very different again to Walking day, which had a real kind of forward momentum and yeah. uh, is this boy actually going to die in this short space of time on the page or not, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so I do feel like um, when the idea comes, I need to really capture energy very quickly, or it's almost as if it's going to just float away. Yeah. You know. And yeah. I mean, short stories are really like. Oh, by the way, um, both
2: of these stories we're talking about are available to read online. So after this, you can go and see what see what we're talking about as well. Mm. Um, I mean, short stories are often the catalyst for a short story. Is often you hear a voice, right? Um, and maybe we can talk about voice in your novels too, because yeah. I find that they're, they're it's very strong, but also quite different as well. Um, yeah. So you mean each book is different? Yeah, each book yeah. is different. So it's, you know, so this first one has a kind of a, well, as I said, wry, but sort of slightly hapless kind of man, but it's, you know, yeah. and it's kind of ironic in its tone and everything. Yeah. Um, and then the voice in Tess is obviously much more much more atmospheric and and darker. Yeah. And then you know, then we've got she's a killer, which is. I mean, do you want to talk a little bit about
1: yeah about the voice yeah, yeah and that and she's a color really did start with the voice so the first scene I wrote which is not in the novel um, was the narrator sitting down with her mother who has a she's a very problematic relationship with her mother so in the novel they only really communicate via Morse code the narrator lives under in the bottom flat and her mother is in the house above her mother owns the whole house and it's very run down um, and she. She's um she's a difficult person, the narrator, and so his, is her mother. She, you know, <laughs> runs in family. Um, and so they've sort of devised – and the narrator is also has a sort of near genius IQ, which is sort of a thing that hang, hangs over her head is that she's always been one point below um, mm. genius, what they'd sort of class as genius level. They're silly categories, but um, – and – Yes, and so she's um, decided that actually it's going to be much easier to communicate with her mother um, via Morse code. So that's how they talk. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so the the first scene was actually her mother coming to visit her and she was showing off this new handbag she'd purchased and the narrator was sort of sitting there completely aghast going, the world's collapsing and all you can talk about is your new handbag. And... And immediately the narrator was sparky. She was difficult. The mother was difficult. um, You could see this tension between them, sort of like they're they sort of attract. You know, like they just can't help but do this, but they want to do it as well, Mm. even though they they know it's (laughs) going to be really awkward for both of them. Um, And the narrator was very judgmental, and I was like, this, this, this. I could just feel it had an energy in it. Mm. Yeah. So that scene's not in the book, but um, it was enough for me then to go on and write what is the first scene and continue. Mm. And, um, you know, that, that what I said about the handbag and the narrator kind of going, you're just buying shit. You know, mm. what, what, how, what, what, is, what use is this? As um, one of my own concerns and climate change, um, obviously, you know, is all a part of this sort of overconsumption is what's brought us to this point mm. so I was like oh okay here we go we can yeah. we can I this is this is space for me to write about this thing I'm really worried about
2: yeah, yeah. so we'll come back to climate but I just mm. I just wondered can you maybe just give a little bit of insight to readers about what what kind of work goes into constructing a voice in terms of i <laughs> <laughs> technically I suppose yeah technically what are you thinking about when you're trying to convey a voice
1: So it has to feel. I have to. It has to feel right. Um, it has to. There has to be some kind of sense of um, veracity, which is a weird thing to say because the character is completely fictional. Um, but and um, for me, she has to be funny. Um, for this book, she had to be funny. She had to um, almost be quite peripatetic in the way that she thinks. So she's always, she's all over the show. She just can't settle on anything. She's quite, um, she's in her own head. She, she doesn't make, she doesn't really have any friends. So really the only person she's talking to is her imaginary friend, who's a character in the book. Um, and the people that sort of push into her life in the book. Um, yeah. It's a really tricky question, Rachel. I mean, I Mm. suppose technically when I'm writing the sentences, I have at this stage in my writing life a sense of what's working and what isn't working. Mm. And really, but actually it's not based on anything really technical. It's based on does this feel alive to me? And if I've got a sentence that feels a bit, uh, you know, or then I'll k- get rid of it, mm. yeah, and I'm really not precious, like I love being edited mm. i've been had the absolute fortune of being edited by a terrific um New Zealand editor called um, Jane Parkin who's worked on so many incredible books um throughout her her working life as an editor and um so i've i i am Always happy to take Jane's suggestions. And she actually makes me funnier. She'll just reverse a few <laughs> words in a sentence and it'll be instantly funnier. Mm-hmm. Um, and I haven't seen that. So, um, yeah, so it really, uh, it's a tough thing Um it's funny, I can apply a critical eye to other people's work and tell them exactly why or why not. Yeah. And I have to do this because I teach creative writing mm-hmm. um, in the first part of the year, so I have to do this for the students. I can't just say, oh, that doesn't work. I have to tell them why, you know. Mm. Um, and But I find it tricky with my own writing, and it really is on driven by my gut. Yeah. And, but, and I, I think that I used to think that that was um, unscholarly, that I wasn't schooled enough, that I hadn't read enough, that I hadn't read enough craft books, I hadn't read enough of the of the great writers. But now I think, actually, no, that's just my writer's instinct and that's a really precious thing and that's what I need to listen to.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a great argument for a lot of writing is instinct and...
1: Oh, it totally is. Yeah. I, I can see that now with the students. Yeah. The ones that come in and I, that have strong instincts yeah. for a particular thing.
2: Do you think... It's because they've read a lot of books and so they no, they've they, absorbed I tell them. you what, they have they not. Oh, I hate them.
1: No, but <laughs> the thing is, the thing is, the thing is, and um, they've often watched a lot of television or films. and I tell you what, I grew up, you know, I did not grow up in a literary family. I was just saying to Rachel earlier, my early childhood reading was The Famous Five and you know, and then um, Trixie It Like, it was, I was, I'm not, I don't have family. Those that are great read. studies
2: and story and character though. <laughs> well yeah
1: yeah but um, so I've caught up as an adult but um, I watched a lot of television and so my sense of form and story arc is informed by um, television films and and probably music videos as well mm-hmm. um, and song lyrics yeah. yeah that song lyrics were my first poetry. I remember as a 12 year old <laughs> slightly embarrassing because it's mm-hmm. not like but Going and writing down words to um, Dire Die Straight Song Telegraph Road, because I thought it felt it was like really moody and I was like, this is really meaningful and I'd like with a tape, because they weren't written down in the thing, so I'd like be pausing and writing it.
2: Mm, I did that so, with the cure.
1: Oh there we much go, cooler. <laughs> so, so, you've always been so much cooler than me, Rachel. <laughs> but it was that stuff and I you know, my husband who is a musician, um, he said, oh, you always know all the lyrics to songs. and But that's what I hear. I, I've had to learn to hear the different music parts, which I have done through living with him for so long because he'll just go, oh, listen to that bass, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, for me, it was always about the lyrics. Yeah. Yeah. So form. So I say to my students, look, I want you to catch up with reading. These are the great writers. And I, I actually put a Tolstoy story in their reader because I say, well, Tolstoy, you know, as part of is part of the canon, and I would encourage you to go on and read Anna Karenina and um, War and Peace. But this is a short story, so it's manageable, and it's really good for dinner parties and people with Tolstoy. but blah. blah, blah you go, yeah, I've read Tolstoy. Oh, so you better say I've read Tolstoy. Yeah. So I think it's really important. But I don't ever want anyone in my class to feel that they are the way I felt. Mm. Um, that I wasn't good enough. Because we all instinctively carry form and narrative within our. We are storytelling creatures, you know. Um, it's how we make sense. We're pattern-making creatures. That's what that's what it is. Yeah. yeah. Storytelling's
2: yeah. a very uh, quite a buzzword at the moment as well. Like, I mean, there's all. The, oh, does
1: government departments use it? Uh, yeah. Let's tell our
2: story. And marketing departments, yeah, yeah. you know, of, of big business, they wanna, they don't wanna market a product. They wanna tell you a story.
1: They want the narrative of the. Toilet cleaner.
2: Yeah. Yeah. How, how are we going to wrestle it away from them? <laughs>
1: <laughs> but The thing is, and, I mean, they're right. They, they've, what they have actually understood is that, and look, the great advertiser, like, so I started off as a copywriter. Before I mm. went to university, I, I was tracking towards a career in advertising. My father was a suit in advertising, and I was like, no one in my family had ever gone to university. I was like, oh, okay, well, that's maybe something. I like writing. I could be a copywriter. And I won an award for um, a campaign I did. And, um, but I went to my, um, the boss, at, who was um, sort of my direct reporter at that time, a woman called Chrissy LaHood, who worked in um, advertising for many, many years. And I don't know, people of a certain age might remember the Anchor Butter Ads, mm. the Anchor Girl, and they told a real narrative. They were, like, in terms of advertising, a hugely successful campaign. Um, and so what she, but what she understood was a narrative. Mm. You're not selling the product, you're selling the story. Yeah. And so, that, so it's smart. They're smart. Yeah. Actually,
2: that reminds me of um, something that Dave said yesterday. Is Dave here? Dave Lowe? He is. Yes, there he is. Um, I wrote it down, Dave. It was very profound. Um, he is. You said that your book was designed to make people feel the urgency of reducing carbon emissions by, um, by appealing to their emotions um, and sort of taking them on, a, on your story journey Mm. Um, so climate change is obviously central to your Mm. story Mm. Um, so how do you take an issue like that and make a novel out of it
1: yeah it's tricky I think that if I thought I'm writing a novel about climate change I would have been so scared I wouldn't have written it Mm. but really I was writing a novel about this crazy character yeah. yeah so that made it almost it's like you trick yourself and and the thing is is that um really to make a book palatable you can't go um, Sue said something in the previous session about writers don't go and go, I'm going to write about the grand themes of, um, I don't know, capitalism and love and divorce or I, whatever, <laughs> whatever. Um, I think that, and like I've never thought about themes as I'm writing. Um, so yeah, it's almost like I, you, I trick myself into it. But so what I did was I thought, I'm going to start at the point, a very simple point, actually, that I've often thought about, you know, when I'm lying in bed early in the morning worrying about things. And I think, so we're going to have shortages with food and different products. Would I rather give up alcohol, say, Pretend like suddenly we couldn't grow grapes anymore because we had problems with the soil or the or the heat or, or flooding or whatever. Would I rather give up alcohol or coffee? Well, coffee's imported into here, so I'd sort of like you know for hours. Coffee, or alcohol. <laughs> it's alcohol that I'd give up. Yeah. Um. So I thought, oh, okay. So what about if we've got a world where it's really really hard to get hold of products? So one of the product, one of the things that um is actually seriously in danger of um. Um, being, being able to be produced as rice because a lot of the rice is grown in um, Southeast Asia. They're lying, you know, kind of deltas, and um, you know places like Vietnam. I mean, I think they're predicting that by the end of the century, fifty percent of Ho Chi Minh City will be underwater. Mm. Um, it's really scary, you know. And they and often these farmers are subsistence people anyway, so they're not going to have any choice. Yeah, and so you so you think about okay, so. What if rice has gone? Wheat prices have gone crazy, which we've actually seen recently with um, the war in Ukraine. Um, you know, and then water, of course, is a major thing. So one of the one of the um, things I did in my book was water's been completely privatised, and you pay as you would pay, um, you know, your, your rates. You would pay for your water allowance. So my narrator. Who does earn money but is sort of useless at managing it, um, but not huge amounts of money. Um, she has, I can't remember how many litres, she has like one litre or two litres, it's a pathetic amount per day. Mm. So she never showers, she has a bird bath. Um, yeah, so just little, little things like that. So I think once I could start to construct the world and those kind of pressures, um, that starts to put pressure on character, it starts mm. to put pressure on how the story is shaped. Mm and then and then I can introduce the things the the bigger worries, which is how the hell are we going to solve this and that 's where the plot starts to get legs because some people come into her life that have a very strong idea about how we can solve this right. and it 's through violence yeah. and that 's another thing i 've often thought about I mean um, some of the great um, thinkers around activism in the 20th century were um black rights movement you know and and so um Martin Luther King, who was um, into peaceful process, a protest, and actually moved slightly away from that um, before he died, and then of course he had Malcolm X, who was in you know an op- the opposite kind of way of thinking. And I've always been really interested in that. Like, do we do we just sit down and refuse to move, or do we actually kill the people who are the problem? You know, make make her make her. Um, I guess a straw man out of, of certain people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so these were things I was thinking about. Um, and I don't, I don't know the answer, and the book is undecided about mm. what is the right answer. Can you
2: just talk a, a little bit about, about some of the characters in the story? Because mm-hmm. I think you, were, um, you, well, you alluded to yesterday that, that Alice is, um, is a certain character who represents... A certain attitude yeah, um, yeah. but I think you carry that through, through the rest of your characters, could you talk a yeah, little bit about sure.
1: that? Yeah, so Alice um, she's someone who has um, the means in terms of um, her ability to, to think and also potentially to act because I often think people who get things done are often quite single minded people um, who won't um, consider too much about how other people think, they're just going to do their thing So um, in, in many regards Alice could be seen As someone who would be A leader um, In terms of how You might change And, and look at different ways To um, you know Develop society But she's pretty much Given up She's you know I, mean, I think the book Refers to her as a slacker She's um, She's just What she's done Is she's gone It's all too hard I'm going to put my head In the sand Which is something That I at certain points Have done It's like it's This is so Hard to get My head around because no matter what I do I could go completely vegan Refuse to ever Drive in petrol cars, never fly anywhere But that's not stopping the oligarchs In Russia from Taking a plane every day to go wherever They want to go or um, You know um, A lot of the coal that's still Being burnt in China um, You know to to give electricity To people Um, So yeah, so it becomes this like, what, what? How the hell are we supposed to live? How are we supposed to deal with this? Um, and so Alice has just gone, no, nah, we're not going to deal with it. Mm. Yeah, so she refuses to mm-hmm. read any stories about climate change or, um, yeah. And um, so I sort of thought, well, she in a way is the is the sort of the parts of my own self that I feel guilty about, mm. but also the governments um, that have um, are not are not choosing harder policies and enforcing um, change and the businesses that refuse to change as well. Um, yeah, so she she sort of represents that. And then she's got um, her, well, she calls her her best friend. This woman doesn't really like her much, but <laughs> she... Um, a couple called Amy and Pete and they're very successful. He's a successful architect and um, and Amy is someone that Alice grew up with and um, they live a really nice kind of she life and have a beautiful house and three children that they homeschool and um, Amy does um, preserving for their bunker supplies and, you know, <laughs> this sort of thing. Um, and, you know, so I was sort of like... Because cause one of the other issues is we have... Um, we have the middle classes who want to, and, and we have a growing, you know, um, developing countries have growing middle classes, right? And we don't want to deny countries like India, suddenly they've got, a household has a chance to have um, a refrigerator, well, it might have CFCs in it still, mm-hmm. well, I don't know if they're still making them over mm-hmm. there, but, um, or, you know, or to own a car for the first time in their families, who are we to say no? Because mm-hmm. we've had that the whole, that's a problem, you know that sort of that um, we get more money so we can suddenly make a much bigger footprint so Mm -hmm. I wanted to write about that and then how you deal with it and this couple their way of dealing with it is to use their money to actually hide to to buy a bunker and to become kind of survivalists and I I hate the whole, I'll be quite Open about that, it's a strong word But um, to me that sort of Survivalist kind of way of Thinking is so individualistic Mm. And I think the only way out Of this is for us to work as a community Yeah Yeah. It's only available
2: to incredibly rich people That kind of way of thinking
1: Yeah although I have Known people who are not um, Uber wealthy who, Mm. Who have This one person who's has a little place and stores stuff away, okay. So, you know, and that's to me, it's a real fear driven mm-hmm. response. Mm-hmm. I get it, like, I totally understand. I mean, you look at what we did with toilet paper, and the oh my god, you know, like, it's <laughs> it's a, we all yeah. have that, like, so, oh, I've got to squirrel it away, yeah. you know.
2: Not only what we did with toilet paper, but the scenes of people fighting over the toilet paper <laughs> as well, you know, it's not yeah. just a matter of. Oh bummer! I missed out. It's like that person's got more. I'm going to go and yeah, and that's it's, yeah. yeah. It's like a tiny little, you know, kind of example of what could happen on a bigger scale. Yeah,
1: yeah. And then the last character I'll talk about who's important in the book is Erica, who's a teenager who is um, radical, radical activist. Yeah, and so her whole way of thinking about it is um, my way or the highway, really. And I don't, I don't actually agree agree with that. Either, but I see it as a valid, a valid way of thinking around a problem. Mm. it's a problem. We'll kill it. Yeah, she's mm. quite a terrifying character. <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> uh, Dave Lowe, I am actually a climate scientist, but more recently a um, award-winning book author.
2: So, what's been your experience of the book fest and, and you know, what, what do you think people get out from of this sort of event?
3: Um, yeah, I think it's wonderfully run uh, by a bunch of very dedicated, and passionate people. Um, I've learned heaps, I've absolutely loved it, and I'd certainly come back to another festival like this. Yeah, you just learn the thoughts and feelings of so many of New Zealand's top authors. Um, we've just heard from Lloyd Jones, for example, and you just you're going into it like a different world, a different space, learning things that you never really thought about before. It's incredible. Good on um, Blenheim Marlborough for putting on an event like this. Fantastic. Do
2: you want to maybe read a little bit mm. um, that well, we were sort of talking about doing a bit that really illustrates the,
1: the, voice, the, yeah. the voice of... Um, yeah. I'm just going to read a little bit from um, kind of early on in the novel and um, Alice is at home with Simp. Who, so Simp is um, Alice's imaginary friend who's actually just in the very first page of the novel has suddenly reappeared she disappeared when um, Alice was seven and they burnt their childhood home to the ground and um, Simp never came back and she's suddenly come back into Alice's life and Alice is 37 Um, so um, Alice is trying to catch Simp up on how the world's changed later that evening I showed Simp the internet no one had it at home when we were little I flicked between social media platforms and celebrity gossip sites. Simp watched as I scrolled and the world was by. She yawned. I looked at her. So what? She said to the internet. I kept scrolling, avoiding sites with news of riots and wildfires, food shortages, new viruses. I wanted her to see how the internet made you feel like something might happen. We both experienced the pre-internet wasteland. Long Sunday afternoons, stuck inside, windows dripping with condensation while my mother boiled up bones for soup. Television channels you could count on one hand. Hope was part of the internet's success. In truth, the news was always bad, but sailing on the current of connectivity was a sense you were a few clicks away from the very thing you didn't know you were looking for. There's nothing good here, said Sim, and you know it. Hmm. I looked up from my screen. I just wanted to show you, I said. Anyway, life isn't supposed to be good anymore. People are suffering the consequences of their overconsumption. But you just scroll past it, she said. Past the people who can't afford to move to this island paradise. Past pictures of the crematorium that was the Amazon and the extinct penguins of Antarctica. Past the oxygen-deprived oceans. Everyone knew about those, even me. The thing was, I couldn't bring myself to care. There was nothing I could do. I couldn't help my place of birth, which, as Simp said, was an island paradise where the climate apocalypse was less apocalyptic. None of it touched me, not in a real way. Other people might react like it was the end of the world, but what difference did that make? Yes, it was a mountain of shit and it was avalanching down on our heads, but what was I to do about it? I'm not an activist, I'm an observer, I said. You're too lazy to observe, said Simp. Upstairs, I heard the volume on my mother's TV go down. The Morse code light box flashed yellow, my mother wanting to send me a message. The transmitter boxes were my idea, but that happened in an organic fashion. A withdrawal of troops too tired for combat. Combat, a silent truce. I'd taught myself to code, and slowly my mother had learned too. It suited our relationship. She, being a paranoid conspiracy theorist who believed the government monitored her every text, and me being averse to conversing with my mother. Morse code had many upsides. It is much easier to understand a question like, what are you doing, when the phrase is stripped of vocal tone and facial expression (laughs) and takes 15 seconds or more to ask. Morse code had no subtext, no emojis, caps or italics. Periods of signal absence carried no weight. And it was good for her elderly brain to code daily. I noticed that she'd become more paranoid of late. She told me that the government was capturing the details of our lives through our online movements and using it to persuade us to vote for Norman Braley, an anti-immigration politician who had been in and out of government for eons. She may have been right about their methods, but not about Norman Braley. There was a rumour going around that he wasn't even alive anymore, that he'd been cloned, that the man calling himself Norman Braley was a puppet belonging to the giant, a dying generation of boomers. My mother didn't like him. She was absolutely his demographic, old and racist. But years ago, she'd seen him drunk in a restaurant and she didn't approve of any kind of intemperance in politicians. She believed that they should act like role models with good ideas on how to lead the country forward. I didn't agree with her because I didn't see being drunk as a moral problem. Surely his anti immigration policies were a bigger problem. Also, I didn't think leaders were leaders because they were especially moral people or imaginative enough to be visionary. No. Political leaders were just people who liked to feel powerful. The successful ones could talk quickly when asked difficult questions by journalists. The ones who said they were there to make a difference were play-acting. Of all the leaders in our government, I tried to explain to my mother, Norman Braley was probably the one being truest to his true self. What would you know about leadership? My mother replied.
2: Mm. Mm. Um that reading just reminded me of, of something in the book, which is when um people are talking about the wealthy refugees online um yeah. and it's like it's like the worst of the facebook comments so, so I remember when um when baruz came here because he was yeah. probably almost a high high profile asylum seeker that we've yeah. had in recent times, and the comments on the stories about him were just horrendous. I mean people had no understanding of what he'd come where he'd come from what he'd been yeah. through so it's it's quite it feels like a very complex thing to be exploring in, in your book with the wealthy refugees, mm. because on the one hand, you know, we don't want them, mm. but is it we don't want them because we want to kind of guard our territory, or do we not want them because it's immoral to be bringing in the wealthy people? Only the wealthy, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah so the book has kind of set this up as a problem where um, handily, as I was writing, this pandemic happened, and I thought, oh, this went on and on. We could be in quite a lot of debt, um, so I'd sort of just There's a one liner that says that they're bringing, They are bring in the wealthy G's to pay off, Help pay off the debt from the um, Most recent pandemic Because I just kept thinking, oh you could keep just having pandemics And you know um, Yeah, so um, I mean immigration is Such a fraught issue um, And who Do you bring in, who do you allow To be here who, um, deserves who deserves it? Who deserves it? Exactly. Yeah, and so um, really, you can only come in, in the book. You can only come if you've got the money to come to 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 buy your way in. So it creates a kind of two tier society. Um,
2: yeah. Um, well, I like the way you don't offer any opinion or solutions about that. You know, you just you just present a, a social media page where people are arguing about it, which is
1: yeah, yeah. yeah yeah they're horrible places to go really oh uh,
2: yeah <laughs> um, tell me about simp yeah what, where, does, simp. where does where does she come from? Yeah.
1: why is she there
2: yeah Okay. what does she mean to you?
1: yeah simp means a lot to me because when I was a child, I had an imaginary friend called simp oh <laughs> yeah don't know where I got the name from. Actually, a friend of mine said to me um, a few years ago because I was talking about simp, and she said, Oh, did you ever read the john Birmingham book Birmingham book, Cannonball Simp, which I, 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 I knew the title, mm. and, but we, I never owned, so maybe, maybe we'd had it out of the library and a, the name had stuck with me. Mm. I had a real weird, I don't maybe it's not weird, when I was young, I thought, so there were two, the most beautiful names in the world to me as a child were Heidi and Simp Simp,
2: which, I mean, Simp means something different these days as well. It does, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. But so when I was writing the book, um, she, there there was a strange little layer that I completely stripped out where Simp kept fighting to name herself and she wanted to call herself Bella because she thought, (laughs) she thought that was a beautiful name and... um, It means beautiful. And it means beautiful. What that was, yeah, yeah, but... um, and the, and the narrator sort of refuses to call her... Anyway, it was an unnecessary kind of... It was just me having fun with the imaginary friend. So um, there's... I, I think I wanted her in there because the narrator is quite a... Um, she's not a very empathetic person. Um, she, You know, I said earlier, she doesn't really have any friends. She um, doesn't have many social graces. Like, she really doesn't know how to kind of oil the, the wheels of conversation. Um Yes, and so Simp is, I see Simp as sort of being the kind of missing part of her kind of um, psychology or a part that's been squashed or um, is just not, she doesn't have any access to. So Simp is quite straight talking and um, yeah, it's almost like a little bit of missing empathy or it's a step separated out from her. Mm. Yeah, and also, I mean, it was just hugely fun, hugely fun um, to have a character there who only one, so if you're in a, if, like, there's a um, scene where they're having a sort of dinner around, um, around Alice's um, kitchen table and there's maybe six people in the room, but she's the only person who can hear and see Simp. so every now and then simple will pipe up so you can get really great comic things happening where mm. simple say something or you know um, reflect on something someone else has said, but yeah, only Alice can hear. Yeah. yeah. So and, and then, but but she had, occasionally answers. Occasionally as well. she answers, <laughs> but he had to be really careful with that as well because mm. it was like, yeah, no, no one knows um, really mm. that Simp is there. Um, yeah. So it was just it was huge fun and. Yeah, that, that thing of kind of almost filling out this because it's hard when you've got um when you've got a character who's not a particularly um nice person. Um I mean they're still really interesting people to read, but um you you can risk alienating your audience And I'm really always thinking of the reader Like I really, I want a readership And I want to entertain people I want them to have a good time, you know, while they're reading And so um, maybe sympathy to slightly soften mm-hmm. Alice as well And to give her another dimension That is, would potentially be missing without her Yeah, And also Alice is just weird I mean, what sort of 37-year-old has an imaginary friend? <laughs> <laughs> She's
2: really you though, isn't she? No. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I, there was a little bit that I that I highlighted here that I was going to ask you about, which is um, sorry, I've got my emergency reading glasses, my tatty ones, because I left my other ones at home. Um, uh, no, I'm not saying this. I'm definitely not saying this is you. This is me poking fun at you. Um, <laughs> the, hill, the hill I climbed to go to work every day stood before me. Already, I was running late, so I took my sweet time. There'd been a moment on the bus when I'd made a decision to, to tip my lunch out. She tips it onto somebody's shoulder.
1: She tips her sauerkraut, which actually is like a turmeric has turmeric in it, onto this guy's shoulder in the bus. Just because she does weird jobs, and
2: we think we think at first she's done it pushed her by accident. I knew I'd done it. Simp was right about some things. I could be a bully, and my avoidance tactics were second to none. And perhaps I'd wasted my natural talents. And for sure, my flat was a dump. But I had no heart's desire—not anymore. I'd trained that out of me. Did you enjoy writing
1: her, like Alice? Yeah. Oh yeah, huge fun, yeah. huge fun. And it's sort of saying when um, when I went when I wrote. Um, Walking day quite soon after I'd sort of handed in the manuscript I still had this energy It's like Mm a uh, Has anyone ever been a sprinter? Sprinter? Anyone? Only at primary school (laughs) Yeah, so same But I I, I did a running kind of um, group a few years ago And they were getting us To sprint Do a lot of sprints And one of the things That the coach would say Is don't stop At the end line Like you I want you going 100% to the end line mm. And you can't just break You've got to let yourself And I And you sort of have to learn How to run fast Again if you haven't Done it for a while Like it really is like And it's hard Because mm. Push And um, And so that's how I felt At the end of this I still had this I was mm. still I'd finish I'd come to the end line But I would and I wanted to use the energy, mm. you know. And um, you sustained it for a long... I mean, this is a 400-page book. It's... Oh, Rachel. I mean, yeah, because look. <laughs> it's like... Um, and, you know, funny. I was looking at it yesterday to do the session with Dave and I thought, I don't know if I ever want to write anything that long again. Mm-hmm. How long I did would it, never take say you? Never. I it I wrote never say never. I wrote 80,000 words in four months. Stop it. It was insane. <laughs> no, I don't think I was very nice to live with. My poor husband and, and sons. Um. I wrote, yeah, I probably wrote, like, um, yeah, I probably wrote, like, that much in four months. Wow. Is that where, yeah, yeah. from when they kind of get over to the upper. Um. um I took five months unpaid leave from my job, and I just so I knew I had this had finite deadline, time. Yeah. I had a deadline. I'm really good with deadlines. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Um, We're going to open up for questions in a minute, but I just wanted to ask you about um satire. And what, what do you think oh. that because this is, I would, I would say this is a satirical novel. Would
1: you? Oh, I don't. I know, know people
2: have definitely. Called I don't it that. like.
1: So I, I have trouble kind of defining satire. So, but I do love. um You know, the thick of it and um, the death of Stalin. So, Mm -hmm. you he's like an amazing satirist. And actually, one of my favourite comedians is, um, his name's just gone over my head. God, that's so embarrassing. Um, Stuart Lee, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: um, who I would say is is like a very high level of satire, Mm -hmm. but to the point where it's like making the audience... um, bringing, reeling the audience and making them implicit and then kind of taking a big dump on them. Um, <laughs> like, I don't know. I, I don't mean, your scene in Moore Wilsons is
2: definitely oh, that, yeah, satire. Yeah, I suppose so, I suppose so, yeah.
1: <laughs> Lampooning. I, like, I think that if I went, I'm going to write satire, I'd be terrified again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I don't, yeah. It's,
2: I, I mean, it. what do you think that satire can do that are, that are a more straight novel? Can't.
1: Well the thing that the thing that comedy does, I suppose, that laughing is it, 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 it a and that's what leads doing as well. It makes you kinda of go, Oh yeah, I'm having laugh, oh really relaxed. Oh, oh my god, <laughs> did you just say that? You know. Um yeah, so there's that and um but it's a I, – I love I actually love that feeling of um being Really entertained and kind of and having a real true laugh, but also going oof, yeah. Like I, (laughs) so the office when the office came out, Mm. that was and but that almost went too. Like we used to watch it with my um, late mother-in-law, who um, my husband would always say she doesn't have an ironic bone in her body, and she she just took it straight. She and she couldn't (laughs) handle it. She was like, "Why is this person like this?" Like. (laughs) <laughs> yeah um and yeah so there's a there's a tension there mm. so i I think that it's it's almost like it's the sugar coating on a on a bit of pill, yeah, isn't it yeah, yeah um and and so actually, it's a very forceful way of communicating mm. yeah, my favorite way to to think about difficult problems is through is through comedy mm. yeah So, um, yeah, some of my favourite TV has been... I know that Fleabag's really kind of looking at difficult... I suppose kind of feminism and um, mother... Well, mother, father, sort of female relationships, that kind of thing. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I... Just love comedy yeah
2: yeah mm. um, do we have any audience questions I have more questions if nobody does but <laughs> not at the moment no there's one oh, there's one behind you
1: Steve Ooh. sorry is this on right uh, I was just we were t- you were talking about consumption and wanting uh, an audience a readership because I, <laughs> I I struggle to spend money on books but I read on my phone through Overdrive library books mm. But it's the same as listening to Spotify I, I wonder what I'm contributing To you as an author if I read books Like mm. then that way Is there a better platform that As a reader I can Well we do so I mean on a practical level um, The library so we have the co- Is it the copyright Public oh, lending rights Thank you yeah, so for, for all published authors, um, when you borrow books out of the library at the end of the year, we get, um, just before Christmas, which is always nice, we get um, a, a certain percentage of kind of borrows. so that's always, that's really good. But um, I mean, it's a, it's cool that you ask that, it's something, Spotify's terrible for artists by the way, absolutely terrible. Um, yeah, um, going to live gigs is, I mean, I know it's that's really... Complex at the moment as well. Um, and I like to buy, um, we've got a record player, I like to buy vinyl when I can to, you know. Um, but yeah, I get it. I get the tension there as well. And I'm the same, I buy all these books. And then the other day I was like, I've actually just need to clear some space. I put them out in the front of our house and get people. But I, I've been thinking about this as well because I am really, having worked for the publisher for nine years, I've been really, really aware of how oversaturated the book market is. Um, and to the point where sometimes I'd find it a little bit depressing. I'd be, where is the audience going to be for this? Um, and but at the same time, I want to hear the stories. Like I, you know, I'm hungry for stories. And so I'm starting to think about different ways to tell stories. Um, and so the short story is another thing. Like at the moment, I'm writing short stories, and I'm not thinking about a collection. I'm just thinking about I want to make these stories and put them, get them out on the internet where I can. Um, and But also I'm starting to write a play and I'm, I've been thinking about um, when I was young, um, the, I mean, the first writing I ever did actually was plays. So at school we'd make them up on the spot and I always had to be the narrator. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, and recently I've been thinking we have, um, in our street, we have um, a Matariki evening um, and I was thinking actually next year will be really cool I'd like to maybe get together with a group of some of the kids in the street and the adults who, and they have various talents, and actually just make a play maybe about our, yeah, so different ways to kind of create story. I'm really interested in thinking about that at the moment um, because it's just, I don't want to put more stuff out for the sake of, I never want to be a writer who just keeps putting stuff out. I think that's...
2: Players are
1: more collaborative
2: as well. I yeah. Mean, I mean, I know we collaborate with editors and things, but, no, no, but really it's all your own work, more, isn't it? Whereas, yeah. So are, you,
1: I'm are really, you attracted to that idea? I'm really attracted to that yeah. idea. I've, um, my husband played in bands for years and um, and still does, He write, and he writes music for film and TV. He's always collaborating with, so now it's with producers and directors, um, and back in the day it was with his band members, you know, and they're always listening to each other. Um, and so it's always a conversation, and I was—I've been hugely jealous of that, mm. you know. Um, and I—I I want that; yeah. I absolutely want that. Yeah. So
2: in the future, your next thing might be the the play by Kirsten McDougall, it might be the film. Or something well, I have like been that, thinking,
1: yeah. I—I I've, I've, because I've, I've met a few film um, and TV producers recently, and I am actually thinking of trying to write a film script for Tess. Because mm. for my in my head, that's TV, that's film, right? Yeah,
2: like I very well. You'd never get this in a. 90-minute film, for a start. No, I mean,
1: <laughs> people people are interested in it as a film, but I mm. can't see it like that. Yeah. Whereas Tess, it's like it's far more visual yeah. and very um, visual, yeah, very atmospheric, atmospheric. Mm. yeah. So you can do a lot through just actually how people are moving and what's happening visually. Mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah,
2: great. Mm. Uh, another question,
3: uh, Kirsten. Oh. Uh, I see that you are, uh, <coughs> have been doing a session with Dave Lowe, yeah. who's here today and is the author of the Alarmist. And, of course, both your books are about the, well, it's the biggest issue in the world, isn't it, climate change? Yeah. Um, in your talks with Dave uh, in the session, and just informally, and in your own sort of mind, how do you feel about what's going on? Is it hopeless? What do you do? What, what do you think? Are we doomed? <laughs> what do you and Dave think about that? <laughs>
1: Dave's Mm. so much better on this than I I I think that I have um, I have real Moments of pessimism Yeah and then um, But there's that's kind of A cul-de-sac way of thinking You know like And um, I don't We have such a finite time Being alive You know um that um I really try to counter that with um with more kind of optimistic ways of thinking and doing so one of the things i 've done is um join my local stream team, so we do planting days riparian planting and we interact with the different um kind of local regional and um local council in Wellington water on the water quality um and I've met some incredible. Um, there's this water activist in Wellington who just lives down the street from me called Eugene Dwell, who is this amazing guy who's just basically dedicated his retirement to water issues. Um, yeah, and then and so I've what I've found is that like I'm someone who's quite physical, so actually plant physically planting trees and grasses is a way to, for me to physically get rid of some of my. You know terror, and then 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 um, also we make submissions on things so um, you know um, the missions um, training scheme you know there's, all, there's there's all sorts of different things that um, that we've made submissions on but the um, and then the, the thing that Dave says is that we have the technology to deal with a lot of issues, so that I often feel really hopeful um, what what we need is the we need as citizens, as voting citizens, to create the political will. We need to, you know, the government is led by what we want. So I think, it's so so one of the things we do with the stream team is we will routinely invite um, the local um, MP, the mayor, the different councillors down to show them what we're doing. And we actually, we go, we are we're not talking at you, we're not telling you you're doing it all wrong, you're, We look at what we're doing, this is, this is the vision we have for our stream um, how can we work with you and one of the things Eugene is very very good at doing he's like um, he's an absolute pitbull on the pant leg of all of these um, hmm. counsellors and, and different people in, in charge of things in the most lovely way but he won't let go You know, so I've learned a lot through working alongside him and how we can how we can um, deal. But yeah, I mean, I do. I I worry, you know. But then I, you've got to offer. I've got kids, and I'm not gonna I'm not just gonna continually tell them it's all doom and gloom because it's actually not. You know, we can make good things still. But we need to be very, very careful about the choices we're making. And, you know, Dave says time and time again, I've heard him say, and he says in the book, we've we've got to the end of this decade. We have to make changes, you know. And I see that, um, you know, one of the things I think if I want to write about next is actually offering up visions of different ways we can live, where it might not be that we've all got cars or you know, all the things that we're used to kind of having for our own households and this sort of thing. But I still think we can have a really rich existence. Potentially we can have actually a better existence. Mm. I think that a lot of the kind of social ills we see in our children, the anxiety, um, high rates of depression and self-harming are to do with the way that we cut ourselves off and we're on these things, you know, um, we've got the little screens and we get ourselves into these little tunnels. But actually if you sit down with people and laugh and... and and um, you know have music and dance, and that is a way to um allow your brain to relax and get creative with solutions so yeah, so I suppose it's says that sort of thing of trying to model some good behavior but i'm not i i'm I'm as scared as everyone else, but I you know got to do something that's an that's an energy as well, so actually channel it into you know, make some submissions, go and go to your local planting day, get involved with whatever the, is happening with your water and infrastructure, you know, to the level you can. I know everyone's got busy lives and this sort of thing, but it's important stuff, you know, and you can't just leave it all up to the government. They, they need to be told what to do, and then their job is to put that into policy, you know. Um, yeah, that's kind of, I don't know. Yeah. It's it's very much that act act locally
2: <coughs> sorry, think globally, act locally kind of thing. Well, and that was it?
1: for my own mental health. It was like I can't if I keep thinking about some of the sites I've seen in China, like massive, massive concrete dams and things, mm-hmm. I'll I can't, I can't do anything about that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, I think that's a really good note to end. That's exactly one o'clock. Mm. Um, thank you, Kirsten. That's been thank really, you, really great. Yeah. And um, thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you. And please, thank Kirsten for me. Yeah. Um, now, Kirsten's books are for sale over there. I believe, are they? I hope yes and she'll be available to sign them yep. um, I really recommend all of these books um, actually I have I have a special place in my heart with, for Tess I'm not sure why but you I just could on film with me oh okay good <laughs> you're on um, but yeah please um, please go and check them out thank you thank you
0: that was Kirsten McDougall speaking with Rachel King at the 2022 Marlborough Book Festival big thanks to all the writers that have supported the festival as well as the audiences that attended in person or listened online if you'd like to learn more about the event head over to marlboroughbookfest.co.nz and if you've enjoyed this podcast please subscribe so you don't miss an episode thanks for listening